Hi, this is Mike Connors. You are listening to TV Confidential. Ed Roberts with a reminder that the next edition of TV Confidential will appear next week on this station at the usual time. We hope you join us for that. In the meantime, Lee Goldberg on the line with us. Lee Goldberg, two-time Edgar-nominated television writer, producer, New York Times best-selling author, and the creator of the Eve Ronan detective novel series and the new Sharp and Walker detective novel series. First Sharp and Walker detective novel, Malibu Burning, available wherever books are sold. You can follow Lee, LeeGoldberg.com. And you mentioned the title, Ashes Never Lie, which is Sharp and Walker number two. I understand that's going to be a crossover between Sharp and Walker and Eve Ronan. Did that start it off? We're going to get a little bit into the weeds, but I had an Eve Ronan book I was supposed to write. Um, I, the, the new Eve Ronan novel, Dreamtown, comes out in January of 2024, and I was going to be writing the next Eve Ronan novel uh, to come out in, in 2025. But because of this whole thing with Sharp and Walker being such a, such a success, it looked like the earliest I could get to another Eve Ronan novel would be 2026 which would be way too long to go between Eve Ronan novels. So um, there's a phrase in publishing called cadence. So the cadence between Eve Ronan novels would not be so long. I made the next Sharp and Walker a crossover with the Eve Ronan series. So it's Sharp and Walker number two and Eve Ronan number six. And uh, it comes out in September of 2024. And then there'll be a third uh, Sharp and Walker that Eve is probably not going to be in. And then I'll probably have a new Eve Ronan novel after that. Well, your answer reminds me of a similar question I asked your friend Michael Connolly when he appeared on our program a couple of weeks ago. His his latest novel, Resurrection Walk, is a crossover between The Lincoln Lawyer and Bosch. And he told me he didn't necessarily set out to do a crossover, but he was eager to write Harry again. So he figured out a way to logically fit Harry Bosch into the Lincoln Lawyer universe, and he came up with Resurrection Walk, and it sounds like that's what you did with Ashes Never Lie. You figured out a way for the E. Ronan universe and the Sharp and Walker universe to coexist. Yeah, well, they, they coexist anyway, so set in the same, uh, they're both about Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department detectives, so they're in the same department. And uh, the big fire in Lost Hills is the same big fire that's in Malibu Burning, so it, it crosses over into the Eve Ronan universe. I don't, I don't mention Eve Ronan in Malibu Burning, uh, but I do obliquely refer to her, so people who have read Lost Hills will see the references to Lost Hills in, um, in the book, though her name never comes up. And then in, in Ashes Never Lie, there's a, a, a fire and a homicide in uh, Calabasas, and Sharp and Walker go to investigate, and that pulls Eve Ronan in. She's the homicide detective, and Sharp and Walker are investigating the arson aspect of it because they're not homicide detectives. And and, and it's, a, it's definitely a primarily Sharp and Walker book, but Eve Ronan has a large role in it. And, then, and I'm not ruling out Eve appearing in the next Sharp and Walker novel that I'm supposedly writing right now. Um, I'm still searching for the plot, even though the, the book is duped frighteningly soon, but she may appear in it, and it may not be a big role. In Resurrection Walk, Michael Connolly's character Irene Ballard appears, mm-hmm. and and she has novels with uh, Bosch as well, so it's, it's a small universe. 
Well, you mentioned you have to deliver your next novel quickly. You have one advantage that not every novelist has because you wrote for television. Television, you have to write fast, otherwise you don't get anything done. Does, are you able to draw on their experience, or does that experience help you in situations where, like this where you're facing a deadline and you need to get going? Oh, it's massively helpful. My television experience is imbued in every book I write, not just in how I write them, but the way I tell stories and and how the characters interact. I, I'm, I use a lot of the principles of television screenwriting in writing my novels. In fact, I want them to move like movies and TV shows. I want them to be carried by action and dialogue and not internal monologues and, and uh, the authorial all-seeing eye. You know, I, I want the characters to drive the story forward. So you know, TV really impacts the way I write. Uh, Lee Goldberg's Malibu Burning, uh, featuring the arson investigator Sharpen Walker, available now wherever books are sold. The new Eve Ronan novel, Dreamtown, also available wherever books are sold. You can keep up with Lee, LeeGoldberg.com. Speaking of Michael Connolly, uh, Lee was recently interviewed by Michael Connolly at an event sponsored by the city of Agura Hills and the Friends of the Agura Library. That 90-minute conversation available for free, viewing on demand on the city of Agura Hills. YouTube channel. I was in the audience that day, uh, Lee, and um, you and Connolly played off each other like you were old friends. When did you meet for the first time? Oh, God, 30 years ago, at least. <laughs> but we are old friends. When I say old, it's not like we're real close friends. I mean, we, we see each other on the book circuit frequently. I've, I've interviewed him uh, several times on stage. Um, we spent lots of time picketing together during the writer's strike. We've known each other forever. In fact, when I was asked to do this event in Agura, they asked me to ask Michael to interview me. And I thought, there's no way he's going to do it. We're <laughs> friends, but I mean, come on, he's not going to do it. He said, sure, I'd love to. And we had a great time. We had a really great time. It was the best type of interview because it was more like a conversation. If you have some time, folks, check it out. It's a lot of fun. You learn both about Lee and Michael's background, and you learn some other uh, inside story about how Lee Goldberg operates. Lee Goldberg, author of Malibu Burning, available wherever books are sold. You mentioned your background in television. Uh, one of your first books, one of your one of your nonfiction books, is a book called Successful Television Writing, which you wrote ages ago, but... In that book, among other things, you talk about how you were initially inspired to write for television from watching the Dick Van Dyke show as a kid. Now, fast forward 20, 30 years, you end up working with Dick Van Dyke when you were the showrunner on Diagnosis Murder. Was that surreal? It was incredibly surreal. I mean, it was so weird. In fact, at one point, when you work with an actor every day, they're not... um, celebrities anymore. I mean, I didn't think of Dick Van Dyke as a legend. I thought of him as the guy I worked with. You know, so it was very easy for me to, to forget um, that he was Rob Petrie and, and, uh, and the movie star and everything that he was, because he's the guy I see every day. You know, and you can't get work done if you are in awe of the people you're working with or intimidated by them. So we were co-workers, and we were very candid with, with one another. And you know, one day he was in my office, and we were disagreeing about something in a script. And I, you know, I don't remember what it was, but we had this, you know, very passionate disagreement. And we were uh, sitting. I'm at my desk. He's sitting across from me, and we have like this moment of silence. And I said, "You do realize, right, that I'm Rob Petrie, and you're Alan Brady right now?" <laughs> 
he grinned at me and he said, "Yes, Lee, but you're no Carl Reiner." <laughs> <laughs> oh God! I was like getting a spear in my chest. Jesus Christ! Oh, God, he, he couldn't have cut me down any lower if he was using an axe. I mean, Jesus! He had a good point there. I'm certainly no Carl Reiner, but I was the executive producer of the show. <laughs> and, uh, to Dick's credit, and I have enormous respect for him for this, he never, ever undermine my authority well, he never pulled the i'm a television legend and who the hell are you card he respected that it was that i was in charge and i keep saying i it was me and william rabkin we were uh partners we were co-showrunners on that show so when i say i i mean we it was bill and i but um bill was not in the office and i had that conversation with uh, well <laughs> it, it made that remark well plus and plus the proof is in the pudding lee if i remember correctly you joined the show after a couple of years on the air and it, it enjoyed its greatest success when you and bill were the head of the ship so the fact that that's absolutely true that gave us enormous power i mean the show was i think it was ranked 68th or something in the ratings mm-hmm. when when bill and i took over the show and once we took it over, it was in the top 10, top 15, top 20 every week. I mean, I think it averaged like number 14 or number 13. It did great. And it got a ton of press. And we, we got so much publicity for the shows we were doing. It really turned that series around. But Dick was never comfortable with the changes we made. Even though it brought so many more viewers and so much more attention to the show, I think he preferred the show before Bill and I changed it and in fact i know that's true because when bill and i left he went right back to what the show was doing before and ratings plummeted and the press died out died away there was no articles about the show anymore it just you know but it but it still stumbled on for another two more seasons after bill and i left um but it was it was not the same show and you know, i have to say also that, that bill and i were involved with the show for years before we took it over we had nothing to do with the first season but the second season of the show was run by Michael Gleason, who was our mentor in the business. Mm-hmm. And he signed us to write six freelance episodes, including the season premiere that year. And then Michael Gleason left, and a guy named Tom Chehak took over the show for a season. And then in the fourth year, Bill and I were brought in as supervising producers. And midway through the fourth season, we were Tom left, and, and we were given the show. And then we were there through seasons, I think it was five, six, and seven, or four, five, and six. It was so long ago. We were there for quite a while. And I think all told, uh, we wrote and produced 100 episodes of the show. If I remember correctly, you worked with another one of your television mentors, William Link, either just before or just after Diagnosis Murder. I think it was just before Diagnosis Murder. Yeah, it was just before. We worked on the Cosby Mysteries. Mm -hmm. And um, Bill Link had created that show. And then he got fired from it um, by Cosby, but he still stayed on in name as an executive producer, and he was still there editing the episodes that had been shot before he was let go. And he and I had, we had, were friends. We had met, uh, I believe, through the Mystery Writers of America, I don't, or maybe it was a mutual friend. I don't recall exactly how we met, but we were already friends. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we had a comfortable relationship, and we were pen pals, and he was you know, thrilled to see me on Cosby, and and also sorry to see me on Cosby. <laughs> it what kind of hell yeah. we'd be going through. But that was a, to be able to call him a friend and to be able to have lunches with him and um, write an introduction to his collection of short stories. And um, he saw a short film I wrote and produced and, and, and called it the Kentucky Columbo. Mm-hmm. He, was, he was really, he was great. I, I miss him. 
we never we never worked on the same show together at the same time, but we had I had enormous respect for him. He's a really sweet man. And and go, going back to diagnosis murder for just a bit, another uh, uh, a, another distinguishing mark when when you and Bill ran the show is you took advantage of you know the fact that you were the showrunners to cast a lot of your favorite actors from your favorite crime shows. Actually, the reason we did that was. Pure self-indulgence. As you well know, <laughs> I'm a huge fan of old television. Yeah. I'm a TV nut. And Diagnosis Murder was in the toilet. And they were doing a crossover episode for Sweeps with Matlock, a show that had only been canceled like six months before or a year before. It wasn't like the world was clamoring to see Matlock again. And the, we thought if you're going to do a crossover, uh, you know, a crossover with a famous detective we haven't seen, bring back someone like Mannix. Yeah. You know, someone who really means something that, that, we've, that we miss. And, and wouldn't it be great to get an old episode of Mannix for flashbacks and bring back the same cast? And, and we came up with this idea, and we were supervising producers of the show at the time, and we pitched that to the showrunner, who wasn't wild about it, but he pitched it to the network, I think, hoping it would get us fired or at least laughed at. <laughs> and the network said, we love it. Can I have it ready for sweeps? We need it immediately. So suddenly I found myself watching, you know, 50 episodes of Maddox uh, at the office and at home trying to find an episode where the guest cast was still alive yeah. and affordable and a storyline that we could bring back um, you know, 20 years later. And I had to talk Mike Connors out of retirement to come back as Maddox. And that was so much fun. And I think that was the episode that, that essentially gave Bill and I diagnosis murder because that episode just exploded. I mean, the... The press was huge. It was a ratings powerhouse, and um, it was just a great experience. And, and to actually write a Mannix episode made me so happy to type those words Mannix on a on a blank screen and have dialogue. It was oh god, it was great. And it goes back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier when uh, you when, when we talked about the crossovers between uh, E. Ronan and uh, Sharp and Walker Lee. In that, even if you're doing a a Mannix meets diagnosis murder episode that you know is probably going to air during sweeps. You still got to do the basics. I mean, the appearance of Mannix on diagnosis murder has to make sense. It has to serve the story and the Mark Sloan character. Otherwise, we also wanted to serve Mannix. Yeah, we wanted this to fit naturally as a Mannix episode. It had to carry over the character. So what this episode was about was Mannix not acknowledging his own frailty. The fact he wasn't the same guy who get in fist fights and, and take concussions every week. And our conceit in this episode is that Mark Sloan, the character played by Dick Van Dyke, had been Maddox's doctor all these years. You know, 78 times he had to patch that guy's shoulder when he got shot. You know, and this time Maddox comes in getting shot yet again, <laughs> saying it's just a flesh wound and... and you know, Mark's law making fun of what a stupid comment that is. But after Mannix leaves the hospital, x-rays come back that show that Mannix has a serious heart condition. And Mannix, Mark Sloan you know, hunts Mannix down and says, you've got to stop doing this. You're going to die. You need to drop this case and come into the hospital for heart surgery, and then you have to retire. You can't keep doing this. It's going to kill you. And Mannix does it anyway because it's a... It's a um, case from his past involving a little girl that he made a promise to. 
And, and that was what worked for us when we found this old episode. He had made a promise to this girl that he would be there for her, that he would make everything all right. It was an episode called Little Girl Lost. And we picked up that story, whatever it was, 15, 20 years later with the original cast. And so there was an emotional resonance to those flashbacks. And uh, it, it, it brought Mannix to a, a, a different place. It, it explored why Mannix is Mannix, why he can't stop, why he's willing to die rather than stop, and, and why Mark Sloan is who he is. And Mark Sloan basically tags along on this case with Mannix because he doesn't want Mannix to drop dead. You know, he becomes Watson to Mannix as Sherlock Holmes in this episode because he doesn't want Mannix to die. I've got the episode where Steve Cannell appears on Diagnosis, but I have not seen the Mannix episode. I'm going to track that down, and I'm going to watch that. because It's I've called been... Hard-Boiled Murder, and I believe um, it's on YouTube. Okay. People have bootlegged it up there, so it might not be hard to find at all. Okay. Um, and, it's, of course, it's in the box set DVDs of, of Diagnosis Murder. And I think it even appears in the box set of Mannix, along with the episode Little Girl Lost. And it's, it'll really resonate if you watch Little Girl Lost first, even though we have flashbacks, because um, they are connected. And uh, we take that story from a different perspective. But we brought back you know, all, the, all the guest cast, except for the girl who played um, the little girl. I think she had retired from acting and had some health issues. So we I can't remember exactly why we were not able to cast her. But otherwise, we brought back the entire rest of the cast. It was Pernell Roberts' final role. I think it was Julie Adams' final role as well. And, or no, Beverly Garland's final role. And, um, and Pernell Roberts. So we had, we had a great guest cast. And, uh, and Mike Connors was fantastic. And we became friends after that. Uh, I remember a very memorable lunch we had at his country club. It was Bill and I and Mike Connors and Robert Stack. And we brought Robert Stack back on Diagnosis Murder 2 to play a villain which was great fun, and he hadn't acted in years. It was his first acting role after doing Unsolved Mysteries, and uh, it was, it was, he was actually kind of nervous about it. He was, he was afraid he wouldn't remember how to act. Well, or, or, or at least act as a villain, even though he got nominated for an Oscar um, for, playing, yes. For, for, yes. for playing a villain. You know, along with and, of course, he... Steve, Steve Cannell being on Diagnosis Murder was also it was an episode I wrote, and I brought him back. I brought him in as a... Burned out over the hill action adventure television producer who speaks only in his own muddled cliches. Oh God, it was fun. Ah, oh, that was a highlight, and I did it just so I could hire my old friend Steve as an actor. And Steve and I were old dear friends. I mean, I had interviewed him a hundred times when I was a journalist, and then I worked for him on Hunter and Cobra, and he and I did book events all over the country together. Uh, he was a great, great guy. Uh, Steve Cannell is a great, great guy. Lee Goldberg is a great, great guy. Lee's latest uh, novel, Malibu Burning, uh, the first in a series of uh, novels featuring Sharp and Walker, is available wherever books are sold. The new Eve Ronan novel, Dreamtown, also now available wherever books are sold. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. One more item if you're like me and want to eat better this year. Our friends at Factor have more than 35 inexpensive, pre-prepared, ready-to-heat and ready-to-eat, chef-crafted, restaurant-quality, and dietitian approved meals that will make eating better every day fun and delicious and your weekly meal planning a whole lot easier with no prepping, no cooking, and no cleanup necessary. Check it out yourself by going to factormeals.com forward slash talk. 
TV50. If you go to factormeals.com forward slash talk TV50, you'll find more than 35 different options a week to choose from that are ready to eat and, best of all, less expensive than takeout. Sign and save right now by going to factormeals.com forward slash talk TV50 and use code talk TV50 to get 50% off your order. Factormeals.com forward slash talk TV50. Use promo code talk TV50 to get 50% off your order. That's code talk TV50 at factormeals.com forward slash talk TV50 to get 50% off. This is William Link and you're listening to TV Confidential. What else do you have in the works that you're at liberty to tell our listeners? Well, I have a book called Calico, which uh, came out November 7th. It's a uh, it's a police procedural western mashup. It's a story that's set in present day and a story set in 1883 that share the same dead body. And uh, it's, it's a real departure for me. Um, and then Ashes Never Lie in September of 2024. And then an untitled Sharp and Walker to come out in early 2025. Well, we will look forward to all of those things, Lee Goldberg. Always a pleasure to chat with you. I look forward to our next conversation. I do, too. Ed Robertson, back for Tony Figueroa, and Donna Allen, Phil Grace, and Greg Arabar. Thank you so much for listening. Stay healthy. Stay safe. We'll talk to you next time on TV Confidential. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential, x.com forward slash tvconfidential, or at TV Confidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay Area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411. Or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.